Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I hope you will be as fascinated as I am with our topic this morning, the capture of a spy. The year 2001 found double agent Robert Philip Hansen arrested for treason near his home in Virginia. As an FBI agent, Hansen sold American secrets to the Russians for over two decades. His betrayal to the United States is characterized by a representative from the U.S. Department of Justice as the, possibly the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. My guest today, Eric O'Neill, was working for the FBI Special Surveillance Group as an investigative specialist and was assigned to work as Hansen's assistant. Eric, however, was recruited to get close to Hansen and to gather evidence regarding what secret information Hansen was actually turning over. Currently, Eric O'Neill is an attorney in Maryland and the District of Columbia. His firm is the Georgetown Group, and he will tell you a little about, it, about his firm in a moment. Not a surprise, Eric specializes in counterintelligence and counterterrorism operations, investigations into economic espionage, internal investigations, and security risk assessment consulting. Since his legal experience is in homeland security, border protection, risk and liability mitigation for anti-terrorism terrorism technologies, national security and federal investigations of United States citizens and foreign nationals, Eric gets involved with due diligence for mergers, acquisitions, procurement, fraud, internal investigations, and companies, uh, and empl- internal investigations and companies that employ corruption cases. As you can probably imagine, Eric is an accomplished public speaker who lectures about security issues internationally. He graduated from Auburn University with honors and majored in political science and psychology and received his law degree from the George Washington University Law School. Eric's involvement in gathering information on Robert Philip Hansen provided, well, more than a compelling story. And the situation became the subject of Universal Studios' movie Breach, released to critical claim in 2007. If you've not seen this movie, Breach is currently available on DVD. Hello, Eric. Hi, Francie. It's great to be on your show. Oh, it's great to have you. And um, just some background. You decided to go to law school before you joined the FBI? Well, actually, I had decided while I was in the FBI to attend uh, law school, and so what I did is I went to GW's program uh, as a night student. So I would uh, finish up my uh, day job with the FBI, and then I'd head over there to um, uh, you know, listen to lectures and, uh, and try to become a lawyer. I can't imagine. I just can't imagine doing that while you were uh, not only in the FBI but doing this amazingly emotional, I would think, undercover operation. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't even remotely easy. And in fact, I have, I have counseled people not to try to find <laughs> some way to be a day student um, and, and not do the full-time job and then have to spend another two hours listening to lectures. But, uh, you know, GW uh, was a great environment to do that. It was tough, but I gutted it out and, uh, and received my law degree. And... Uh, obviously are doing well. Uh, so 
you were with the FBI then how many years? Five years. Five years. And then did you, you went to work for an, a law firm at that point, is that right? Yes, I, I left the FBI for any number of reasons and uh, joined a, one of the large multinational law firms, worked in government affairs, um, working primarily in government contracts, internal investigations of companies and diligence matters. And part of that was, of course, the Safety Act and um, other counter-terrorism technologies, which I specialized in uh, for my clients. I did that for about five years before I decided to uh, leave the big firm life and hang mm -hmm. up my own shingle uh, and form an investigative company. And that's called the Georgetown Group. That's right. Uh, we, uh, we have one licensed PI. Um, yes. I am not, but, uh, but Charlie Pink, my uh, partner. Yes, is, and I know uh, Charlie. World-famous licensed PI. Yeah, he says he put the, uh, what is it, the PI in pink? <laughs> um, and uh, and he's well known, I think, uh, in a number of PI groups. Um, and the two of us decided, uh, you know, and interestingly enough, at a uh, premiere the spy museum was doing of their Operation Spy show, which is fun if you ever get to DC and mm. uh, and have an opportunity. But uh, they had um, me there from Breach, the movie, and they had De Niro there from uh, another movie, Universal movie, The Good Shepherd. Um, to sort of kick off the uh, the program, and uh, Charlie had worked on the Good Shepherd, and of course I had worked on Breach, and it's about me, uh, and so we met uh, just talking and decided, you know, he. I think the question was uh, I had for him working as a lawyer: Can you actually make money in doing this stuff? <laughs> uh, and he said, he said you would be surprised. And I said, well, that's great because I've been looking uh, for a way to get back to my FBI roots. For uh, for years, uh -huh. and uh, and this was the way to do it was to uh, start my own company. So and so, how does that work, Eric? Uh, you're an attorney, and he's a private investigator. So, are you actively doing uh, joint investigations? Y yes, we are. I have two other partners who came uh, from a, both a investigative and political background, and so what we do is we offer a suite of services to our clients. Uh, the majority are uh, corporate clients, and, and both here in the U.S. domestically and international, internationally, and we we range uh, everywhere from background investigations. You can you can understand that diligence generally wants some pretty detailed ones of say a CIA CEO that they are mm -hmm. bringing on board, or sometimes even the entire company uh, that they're looking to acquire. Uh, we work from background investigations all the way to fraud and corruption investigations. Of course. A little bit of spy hunting in there as well, which is where I have uh, somewhat of an expertise. I like to say, yeah, um, right. And from there, we also do a suite of security. Um, my background in counterterrorism uh, made me very well learned in the sort of profile you need to secure your company from outside risk. Um, and we do a full suite there, from uh, physical to cyber uh, intrusion. And we've even done some inner city crime, uh, protecting housing developments from um, some of the criminal elements that were moving in um, well, from shady side of town. As they say, timing is everything. I think your, your background and experience with the current state of affairs since 9-11, it makes you amazingly qualified to do what you do. Yeah, I do, I do my best. And it, you know what? I'm having fun doing it. And, uh, and I had a passion for it in the FBI. And, and I think I miss doing it. And that's why I'm, I'm back doing it now. Well, that sounds really exciting. And uh, I know Charlie does a great job, too. Um, so, how were you recruited for this, what I can only describe as a highly charged, dangerous assignment? 
Right. It, well, it wasn't. It was a face-to-face uh, -face undercover assignment, which is different from what I was used to as an investigative specialist. Um, primarily, my job uh, was to conduct high-level securance. Uh, I'm sorry, surveillance of different targets in the United States domestically, and uh, that was both counterintelligence and counterterrorism. So either we were following a suspected or known terrorist, or a suspected or known spy. Uh, or intelligence officer uh, seeking to recruit United States citizens as spies. So, I, I was just uh, going to say, go I ahead, suspect Nancy. that before this case came to light, that few people knew about the special surveillance group. Well, it wasn't, it, it was classified when I began. It became declassified and, and uh, people learned about it. it. It's now somewhat more open. There have been a number of uh, documentaries done on it, and uh, you can apply uh, right on the uh, the FBI's website, hmm. um, and, and it, it you know for someone I, I speak a lot to high school and college students and primarily college students who are not quite sure what they want to do graduate in college and and I encourage them to try it out. It is a great way to learn skills that you will never learn anywhere. Hmm. Uh, a, a full suite of skills that any PI needs doing any of the work that they do. Interesting. Um, you know, beginning with surveillance and also understanding your target, some behavioral assessment, uh, driving obviously an enormous amount of photography. You've got to be able to capture the evidence, and then as you get more of a veteran, some search and um, and, and tactical response, and you know, many other things that I can't really get into uh, because I get in trouble. Right, <laughs> I understand uh, that. It's an amazing career in in if I were to boil it down to the most pertinent thing you can learn, it's how to assess your environment how to know what's happening around you, mm -hmm. how to know how to react when things are happening. You, you know, a former ghost, you never catch them unaware. unaware. You, you just have this instinct to know who's around you and what they're doing at any given time. And you, you feel like you've carried that over into your professional life? Certainly. And, you know, professional and private life, I, 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 still, I still find myself, you know, looking around me and wondering who I am. I'm the kind of guy who's walking down the street and isn't just tunnel vision looking ahead of them. I'm looking up at rooftops to see if anybody's looking down at me. Interesting. Interesting. What does your wife think about that? Uh, she, as soon once I stopped doing the disappear and show up behind her without her knowing, <laughs> used to really annoy her. Uh, a little party trick. Uh, you know, she got past some of that stuff. But uh, she, she understands what I did and, and how it, uh, I think, I'd like to say, she understands how it changes you as an individual. Yeah, um, and I want to come Once back. you're in that business, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I want you really that. can't get out of it. Okay, so you, so you must have been a star performer for them to recruit you for this, because um, this assignment, they probably spent, I would say, the FBI spent a lot of time trying to decide who to choose to put in the position of this assignment. It, they would have had to. It, it was a, a critical part of the investigation. And just a caveat here, there was a, a much larger investigation than the, uh, than the small part of it that is uh, depicted in the movie Breach, um, which, which turns me as the hero. Uh, there were many heroes in the Hansen investigation. I just was sort of the face person that was out there in front of Hansen day after day. So they had to find someone who was going to be able to do this professionally but also not have the specific training that many special agents get in undercover operations because Hansen was an individual who had uh, who knew that of that training and could possibly 
uh, sniff out some of the tells that someone who was engaging in some of those tactics would use. So coming to the uh, to special surveillance group made sense. Um, I also knew quite a deal about technology and computers specifically. And back then, uh, you know, we're dating ourselves now, but it, the FBI was not ahead of the game in computerization. Uh, field agents were still writing out their logs by hand. Uh, so it was hard to find someone who had a detailed knowledge of computers and could understand what Hansen was doing, because you need that if you're going to watch your target, you have to know what your target's going to do. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, uh, be able to turn a computer on and talk shop with them. So um, he was arrested in 2001. When were you recruited? Uh, in, well, to work on this, in this case in right. 2000. In 2000. 2000. Right. Wow. Well, let's take a quick break, Eric, if, if we can. And uh, I have so many more questions to ask you. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're discussing the amazing case of Robert Hansen, the former FBI double agent, with Eric O'Neill. Eric it was the one who helped expose him. And uh, so, Eric, uh, the FBI evidently, from what I gather from reading about this case, is they, uh, they had information that Hansen was operating, uh, selling secrets to the Russians, but they didn't have really any hard evidence. Is that right? 
They had evidence. They had a, a the, the biggest break in the case was the recruitment of a source in Russia. And that's, that's really the main way that you were able to catch spies like Robert Hansen. Uh, the source uh, gave us, sold us, a uh, folder of information. And in that folder were a couple things. Some of the letters he had written to the Russians, uh, which of course didn't identify him by name. A partial fingerprint um, on a trash bag that he had used in a drop. Uh, and among other things, a um, recording of his voice calling one of his Russian handlers. Hmm. So with all that information, they had a pretty good arrow pointing directly to Robert Hansen. Um, but what they didn't have is they didn't have anything that they could use to charge him with espionage. I the see. best that they could charge him with would be conspiracy to commit espionage. It wouldn't have been uh, the greatest case. And, uh, you know, best case scenario was he gets 25 years in jail. Um, just to back up a tiny bit, I have to explain the importance of catching Robert Hansen red-handed, of okay. being able to uh, uh, try him for espionage. You know, with what he did, uh, we really needed to understand how to fix it. He had, um, the most egregious thing he did is blew holes in our ability to, uh, to engage in counterintelligence, in our ability to protect ourselves from spies and terrorists. Mm -hmm. He had given up many of our ways and means uh, to the Russians. And so we really needed leverage so that we could sit him down and, uh, and separate the truth from the lies, of course, but get him to tell us exactly what he did so we could fix it mm -hmm. and uh, make it better and protect the country. Mm -hmm. So we had to get him red-handed. We had to find a way to, uh, to keep him in the FBI because so he was about to retire, uh, to give him a job where he'd have access to information uh, and to watch him so we could uh, know when he was going to drop that information to the Russians and catch him in the act of doing it. Mm -hmm. And that actually happened. He was caught. And, and we, we managed to do all of that, Yeah, which was a textbook operation. I'm sure it was. So when you were first contacted uh, to go undercover in this job, what happened? What were you thinking? Did you, did you have to make an immediate decision? Could you think about it? Tell me about all that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was first contacted by my supervisor, uh, who was a, a spe supervisory special agent, um, at my house. I received a phone call. I think it was eight in the morning on a Sunday morning, um, and it, which was very, very unusual. That would get your attention. Um, yeah, yeah, it certainly got my attention. I thought that I was just being called in for, for you know, none of our operations were routine, but something that I was expecting. Um, I, I worked on a wide variety of matters and targets, uh, and sometimes a target would do something odd and they'd, they'd grab a team and get them out there. Um, but here, uh, you know, my supervisor on the phone said, you know, hey, Eric, can we speak for a moment? And, of course, when you hear that from any boss in any, uh, any <laughs> occupation on a Sunday, you think you're in trouble. <laughs> right. So I was gritting my teeth for God knows what I'd done, you know. And... Uh, uh, and I said, sure, let me just, let me just get dressed and, and get a cup of coffee in me, and I'll meet you at the office. And, he, and then I hear, uh, you know, don't worry about that. Just put your shoes on. I'm outside. Oh, my gosh. And he was literally sitting outside my apartment in his car. And I said, well, why don't you come in, and, uh, you know, we can we just have a cup of coffee here in my living room. And he said, no, your wife's not clear to hear any of this. Come out, and we'll talk in my car. Um, and then I really thought I was in trouble. 
you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking tactics. They separate him from his wife, get him to come outside <laughs> on some pretext, and, you know, SWAT is waiting. You know, because in the line of work I did, uh, it, it was a big game of espionage. And if you, if you were learned, uh, if your targets learned about you and actually learned your identity, uh, then they could send fake information to try to just mess with yeah, you. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I walked out kind of with my shoulders up and, uh, and, and worried, uh, and there he was just sitting in his car. So I got in the car with him, and he asked me if I had ever heard of this guy named Robert Hansen. And I said, no, I had never worked the case. And he said, that's good. Um, you know, we've got a, a opportunity of a lifetime for you. And he explained it, that I would work undercover with him in, a, uh, in an office um, that they were going to set up at headquarters, that I would be uh, officially TDY to headquarters uh, to work in a division called the Information Assurance Division, and that no one except for a very small handful of people would know that I was going undercover. So none of my colleagues uh, with the ghosts, um, I think there were only three people in headquarters who knew about it, including the director, uh, and a handful of people at the field office. So I was, I was going in uh, undercover as myself. Uh, and I said, well, that's, yeah, I'd like to think about it. And he said, you have two minutes because oh, the director wow. is waiting for me and I need to give your answer. Uh, and and I, just, uh, I just looked at him. I said, well, in that case, my answer is yes. Uh, so, Eric, how old were you at that point? 26. 26. Wow. Yeah, so, and, and you couldn't, game. I'm sorry? It's a young game. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. You have to. You have to be a risk taker, for sure. Um, and you're still a risk taker when you're 26. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, it, uh, it. You know, I'm still a risk taker now at 39. But it. Um, it. Uh, you know, makes life fun. And of course, you couldn't tell your wife. Uh, I couldn't tell her anything about it. All I could tell her was that I was promoted um, to a essentially a computer job. And my explanation to her was I accepted the promotion because it would make it easier for me to get to law school at night uh, because I wouldn't have to worry so much about, you know, surveillance essentially boils down to shift work. Yeah. You have to have someone yeah. there for these things around the clock, so you have to work out shifts for all of your assets. Uh, and a team would come on to relieve a team that was in the field. Um, that team got to go home and grab some sleep before they were back out there again. So it could be, it, it could be grueling to try to trade shifts around kind of like working in retail, um, so that uh, I could make my night classes at GW. Yeah, and when you use the word assets, you're talking about the people you're watching. Uh, actually, the people that are doing the watching. Oh, doing the watching, okay. The people we're watching are targets. Okay, okay. Just want to make sure I get the terminology right here. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what was done to prepare you for this assignment? Nothing. Nothing? Uh, absolutely nothing. I really? I was told nothing about Robert Hansen. Um, I was not told anything other than he was suspected of espionage, uh, but that they hadn't confirmed it. And uh, I was told just to go in, keep my eyes open, and not, and not um, uh, using a different term, an expletive, but not screw up. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, in the beginning, the most, important, the most important part of my work in this case was to make him feel comfortable, to mm -hmm. make him feel that this was a real job, that the information assurance was doing real work, and according to everyone at headquarters, it was real. No one knew that this was this was a mouse, an elaborate mousetrap to catch a spy. Um, so I, uh, I ha actually had to do the job of an information assurance specialist. Um, 
so I was I was working that job. I was working my mm. real job, the surveillance, and I was also a, a, a night student at law school trying to, at some point, read a case before my uh, professor was going to call on me. Yeah, so, and, I, and I read someplace. Yeah, I read someplace where you were writing your reports on what had happened during the day while you were in your class. Right. I would write my surveillance logs um, for. I had to essentially memorize everything that Hanson said and then write it down at some point, uh, type it up late at night after my wife had gone to sleep, and hand it in the next day to um, my agent handler. And, uh, you know, the longer you wait to get things down, the more it degrades in your memory. Sure. So I would, you know, the, the next moment I had when I was out of Hanson's sight was in law school. So I started sitting way in the back of the room and pulling out a steno pad and just writing down as fast as I could everything. It's just sort of like a memory dump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember once I was called on by the professor. And I was so distracted and hear him, uh, and I think he he asked me something, and I snapped at him. I was really tired at that point, and I, I said something in the line of, "You know, whatever you just asked me isn't even remotely as important as what I'm doing." <laughs> and uh, you know, professor, law professors especially don't like hearing that. I suspect they don't. <laughs> and I had to go apologize later, and you know, they they knew that I I didn't. I never told anybody what I did, but they knew that I, I worked in something related to national security, and, and they all understood that. So it, uh, it, it was something I could have never got away with as a day student, but as a <laughs> night student, you know, sometimes they have to understand that you've got you have other things going on. So when you were, so you were working in this office with this guy, and, and I don't know, is it portrayed in the movie kind of like the setup was in the office where you're, out, you're in an office outside of Hanson's? Yes, and actually the uh, Universal uh, and the director, the producers and the director, went over to FBI headquarters mm. um, and met with, the FBI has a media department that handles all these sort of things, because clearly everybody wants to make a movie about the FBI. Right. And uh, they were given access. They were showed the room, which has now been repurposed um, and repurposed. Uh, allowed to actually <laughs> fill, uh, to, I'm sorry, film um, some of the scenes in FBI headquarters, which had never been done before. They ended up not using any of them, uh, but, but they actually were allowed to film. So there was an unprecedented level of access provided by the FBI. And, in fact, it changed the screenplay because prior to the FBI's involvement, I, I was not allowed to talk about any of the technology used in the room. Um, and, and once they went and talked with the FBI, the, the, the agents told the producer and um, the director, and I wasn't there in that meeting, um, oh, no, there were cameras in the room and, and microphones and all that. And, you know, once the director came back and asked me that, I said, let me explain why I couldn't tell you any of that. It wasn't in the public. They've mm-hmm. just declassified it for you. Um, so now you can use it in the movie. Now I can talk all about it. But before then, it was still classified, and that would have gotten me in a lot of trouble. Well, and you had to jump through a lot of hoops to even do this movie, right? Uh, quite a few. You know, I never wanted to do a movie. I, uh, what I wanted to do was write a book, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I had left the FBI sometime after the Hansen case, um, and I thought that I would write my story, and I've always loved writing. Um, you have to be a good writer to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I finally got permission from the FBI to tell my story, and it wasn't in, until after um, Robert Hansen pled uh, guilty. Mm-hmm. And... By that time, there were seven books with seven different publishers um, wow. that were already in manuscript form. And so, uh, you know, I, I went all over and talked to everyone, and uh, nobody wanted to buy the book. So I, I knew 
my brother, my brother David, was at that time a screenwriter out in L.A. He's now a screenwriter in New York. Uh, but he knew some people who were also writers, and, and he said, why don't you try this? And I said, no one's ever going to make a movie about this. And uh, I was wrong. Hmm. We talked to um, two great writers out there, Adam Mazur and Bill Rotko, uh, and, and together, the four of us, came up with the concept and drafted well, the first draft of the screenplay. And, uh, certainly. And just snowballed from there to Universal Scenes. Yeah, certainly was successful, and I, and I would think also that um, it it really gave the FBI some good press. Yes, there were you know I, I think the way that Universal presented it to the FBI is one of two ways: you can work with us, and it will be your top gun, you mm-hmm. know, a hero story mm-hmm. that will help you with recruit with recruits, um, or we can make it a story about how you totally left Eric out to dry and are a bunch of bastards who couldn't catch a spy for twenty two years. So. Uh, the, the the FBI, as you might imagine, said we'd be happy to work with you. Well, and and the reality is, people do need to hear that people get caught for doing things like this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. no different than employee theft. The employees need to know they get caught, and spies need to know they get caught. Right, and you know, in this world, employee theft and spies embezzlement, and you know, it's not a matter of whether you'll get caught. You will get caught. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of. Hmm. So back to Hanson, um, and we're going to have to take another break in a second. But um, why do you believe he was willing to sell out his con- out his country like this? That's a great, that's a good question. I get that question a lot when I speak. Um, I actually, I always get that question because it's the se- it's really central to understanding Robert Hanson. Mm-hmm. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but that's not the end of the answer. Yeah, um, I only say that because. I don't know, nor does anyone except Robert Hansen, and he has never um, spoken about why he did what he did. But I think I have a better idea than just about anybody else uh, because I spent so much time with him and speaking with him. I think that at the end of the day, he he started his career as a special agent, um, one, with an enormously inflated ego, and two, in New York City, which is a terrible place to be a young agent uh, because the price of living, cost of living is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, he had married up. Uh, she came from a much more wealthy family than he did. Uh, and he was having children um, at the same time that he, his faith, you know, an Opus Dei uh, sect of Catholicism, uh, was telling him, you got to type 10% of your salary to the church and you must also uh, send your children to Catholic schools, which is, of course, private schools are expensive. So he didn't have the money to live the way that he thought that his ego said he should live. And he had six children, right? He, I, I think seven. Oh, seven! Uh, wow. Was arrested, right? And he, uh, uh, I truly believe that he was angry at the FBI for not um, treating him the way he felt he had to be treated. Uh, he he didn't feel like he was at the level of his life that his ego required of him. And so what he did was he found a way to make ends meet. And he even told me once that, look, in order of importance uh, in your life, it is God and then your family, and then your work, and your country. Uh, and and if, you, if you think about his mindset in that order of importance, um, he needed to do what he had to do to protect his family, and so he sold out and spied. Um, Seems like he forgot about the God part if he was dealing with morals. Yeah, but, he, certainly, okay. <laughs> he certainly was able to take his, his morals and turn them upside down and twist them at will. Exactly. Um, not to say he was crazy. I think he was, he was very sane. Yeah. Um, 
Right. He just had a way of compartmentalizing his own mind and, and separating what was good and evil and, and choosing what would be good or what would be evil at any given time. Okay, we need to take a break, Eric. P.I.'s Declassified, we'll be right back with Eric O'Neill. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, Eric O'Neill, had a unique and harrowing experience as an undercover operative for the FBI, and we've been talking about the capture of Robert Philip Hansen. And I was just telling Eric during the break that I read this um, evaluation of Hansen that says, following his arrest, when asked why he spied, he stated two reasons, fear and rage. Fear that he would not be able to support his family and would, in turn, lose their respect and rage at the way he was treated by the FBI. Apparently, this rage grew each time he was passed over for a promotion he thought he deserved or was treated as inferior to the field agents who he considered weak and intelligent. And he was, he was a very intelligent guy, right, Eric? He, yes, he certainly was. He, he, uh, he was a genius with computers, um, a mathematician. He was able to program um, everything from his own personal computer to his uh, 
personal Tom pilot. So he uh, certainly knew. Uh, he certainly was very smart. He also had hid from the FBI for 22 years. Was yeah. one of the most damaging spies in the history of, of the uh, Bureau. Yeah, and and it's interesting uh, when I was reading about his background. Uh, he'd been he'd studied accounting, or he'd been an accountant. Um, he'd um, um, been in. I guess he went to dental school. Dental. He was, was a, a dentist. I was just going to say he was a dentist. Yeah, and his and his father was a, a Chicago police officer. Yes, his father was a police officer. Yeah, so I just i I can't imagine what this family. Um, his wife was a teacher at a Catholic girls' school, and um, I believe his father-in-law was a professor at Loyola. Right. Uh, I I can't. I could never try to put myself in the shoes of his family. I can't imagine what they they've gone through and probably are still going through. He will be in Supermax prison for the rest of his life. And do you know where he's at right now? Uh, Supermax is a uh, maximum uh, detention facility in Florence, Colorado. Florence, Colorado, yeah. It's actually not too far away from my hometown. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, and because I saw he was convicted of 15 counts of espionage. And yes. and it just said uh, a life sentence, but it it is a life sentence without parole. Without any opportunity for parole. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot to give up. It's quite a deal to give up. Yeah. Um, and, and he will be, uh, you know, he has a very terrible little cell, and uh, he'll pace that cell for the remainder of his life without any opportunity to leave. I think the only people allowed to visit him are his wife and his priest. Not even his children. I think his children can come visit him. But, you know, he's in Colorado and his family lives in Virginia. Yeah, um, well, true. So it's it's a bit of a trip. Yeah. Wow. So did he's characterized as um, looking down on the other agents, feeling that they weren't equal to his intelligence or equal to his ability. Did you get that impression? I'd say that's a fair characterization. Really? Yes, he, he certainly looked down on, on me. Uh, because I was not a special agent, he, he delighted in calling me a clerk. Really? Yeah, and I just had to grin and bear it. But, of course, I knew in the back of my mind that I was also investigating him. Hopefully at some point we'd catch him and then I'd just get back at him then. And other, and, the, and his colleagues, I guess. I mean, there, he had some different names that he was called. Uh, you, you told me he was called Dr. Death. Right, uh, and, and the mortician. And the mortician. And he, why was he called that? It, it was a couple of things. One, his demeanor. He was a somewhat of a cold fish. He was not good at having a conversation in a crowd. He wasn't the kind of guy who would do well at a cocktail party. In fact, he shunned those sort of environments. He was very much a wallflower. And uh, you know what? If you're a spy, that's a, that's a wonderful way to be. You want you all always want to be gray. Of course, you want to blend in and not be seen. Um, so he was the he was the the nerd in the back of the room who who had no social ability to uh, to really engage with people at the FBI, and he got very upset when people didn't listen to him. Um, so he had that underlying rage that you could tell was there. Uh, you know, part of the reason he was also called the mortician or Doctor Death or mortician. He was just really tall and lanky, mm-hmm. and in the time that I worked with him, he wore the same suit day after day, a very, very dark blue, almost black, you know, mm. navy blue suit, uh, and he would change his tie, and I hope he changed his shirt, 
Um, <laughs> but, you know, you walk around in a dark suit every single day of your career, and, uh, you know, it's something people can key, key in on. If they just don't like your personality and, you know, they might be a little bit mean. Um, you know, honestly, I think that part of the reason that, uh, that Robert Hansen continued to spy, and, you know, he reached a, a point in his career where he didn't have to spy for money. And, he, and you know, a, 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 a well-rounded person doesn't feel like they need to become a trader in order to make ends meet. There are other ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but at some point, he didn't need the money anymore. And, in fact, he would tell the Russians, you're giving me too much money. I think at that point, it, it became that thing that drove him to, you know, it's the thing that made him feel happy. And probably the best way to describe it is um, it made him feel like he belonged. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with spying, he belonged to something that he was bigger than all of us. Yeah, gave, yeah gave and him it, it, it made him special. It made him, you know, to the, to the you know, the FBI he was Dr. Death, some, some geek dork who, uh, you know, people would rather not be in the room. But to the Russians, he was, he was the goose that laid the golden eggs. He was the yeah. most wonderful thing they'd ever come across. I'm sure he was. And, and one of his colleagues described him as creepy. He, uh, it, it's quoted to say you would look up and he'd be lurking in the hallways. He was beyond creepy. Really? He definitely, yes. He was, it was not an enjoyable experience to work for him. Amazing. Well, and, and he actually approached the Russians himself. They didn't approach him, correct? Yes, he is what we call in, uh, in the spy world a volunteer. Okay. Um, and he was not recruited. He volunteered his services to the Russians. And he did it by sending a letter to a known intelligence officer um, that we knew was an intelligence officer and we had taken great pains to make sure that, that this Russian did not know we knew was an intelligence officer in the hopes that we would clandestinely follow him and he would lead us to spies. Uh-huh. Um, so Robert Hansen sends a letter to this guy saying, hey, we know you're an intelligence officer. So that was his first breach, sending the letter to this guy and that was tactical um, and, and also listing the names of some people that he gave up in that letter um, to prove that he had access. Um, and that's how he started his relationship. And those names he gave up turned out to be two, ended up being executed by the Russians and third sent to prison. Is that the right. same now, one? I don't believe those are the same ones in that first letter. But okay. later, in, later in his career, um, he would do that from time to time, especially if he identified sources in Russia who could perhaps um, provide information to the CIA or the FBI um, that mm-hmm. would lead to his capture. And he knew they'd be executed. So it was a, a good way of getting rid of his problem. And, he, and I think in that same letter that he initially wrote to him, he said he would work for money and a few diamonds for his children and goodwill. <laughs> right. Well, he wanted the Russians to feel that he was a patriot uh, mm. to, the, to Russia. He wanted, mm. he wanted them to believe that he was doing this for ideology. Um, when a spy you know, is an ideologue when they, when they believe in some other system of government or some other country, the way they operate, then, you know, it, it makes the Russians in this case a lot more comfortable about the source of the information. Um, I don't think he was. I think he, he actually, in his, you know, back in his weird mind, believed that he was a patriot and, and perhaps felt that he was um, teaching the FBI a lesson that would make them better. Interesting. Well, and he talks about 
uh, with them that he was a fan of the British Soviet spy, Kim Philby. Kim Philby, yes. From and, that's uh, from the fifties. Yes, and and he probably was. I mean, look, in the in the uh, in the Parthenon of super spies, Kim Philby's name is definitely in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hanson wanted to be in there too. And honestly, he was he was a smart enough guy, and 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 a person enough in control of himself that he didn't want to get caught at all. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I honestly believe that he, uh, in many ways, really felt a burning need to explain to everyone his genius, that, to to somehow let people know how smart he was. Mm-hmm. And of course, he couldn't do that unless he got caught, and uh, he didn't want to get caught. So. Um, like like Kim Philby, I, I think he felt that he felt that uh, he wanted to be the same level of spy, and he certainly had no respect for Aldrich Ames. We we talked about Ames at length, and uh, each time uh, that yeah, Aldrich Ames uh, for the audience was a uh, was a CIA spy, right? Uh, who was caught before Hanson, uh, and before Hanson was was possibly known as one of the most damaging spies, and. Uh, you know, he would call Ames a drunk and a drug addict and a loser. Um, you know, meanwhile, Ames was really giving some very egregious information himself. Some of it even tied to the same things that Hansen gave. So, uh, you know, uh, Robert Hansen certainly wanted to better that guy. I, I got that feeling. Mm, yeah, interesting. We're going to need to take another break, Eric. Stay tuned for more from attorney Eric O'Neill. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. 
My guest today is Eric O'Neill, the man who helped expose the former FBI double agent Robert Hansen selling American secrets to the Russians, and he's here to talk about it. I, Eric, I was just thinking that when you were describing uh, Robert Hansen and uh, other spies, that it seems like he was kind of the profile of almost what you would call any serial offender. Offender. He was a serial spy, but he has a similar profile to what you hear about other offenders who, whether they be serial rapists or serial murderers or whatever, that same kind of profile that they're smarter than everybody else, they can get by with everything they want to do, and they um, plan it to the nth degree. It's really an interesting profile. Yeah, it's, it's definitely true. I, you know, the, the psychological term sociopath. Um, right, and it has an incredibly negative connotation. But if you boil down the term, it really means someone who believes that society's rules do not apply to them. Yeah, um, and, and that certainly was Robert Hansen, and and many criminals who uh, who commit very egregious acts, murderers and serial killers, and those sort of things are are certainly sociopaths. Well, and it's really astonishing to think that he. He was really uh, committed to going to mass every Sunday, wasn't he? Yes, he was, and you know, and I don't believe that was a cover. I truly believe that he he felt very strongly in his faith. It it, yeah. it it doesn't, you know. I'm a Catholic, and I have trouble coming to terms with that. But yeah, I think it's, it's very true. You just we had so many genuine conversations about faith and about uh, religion. Uh, which, which I'm not sure you're supposed to do in a government building, but, right. <laughs> but still, uh, it's you know there are two things he could talk about. Um, he could talk about religion uh, mm-hmm. with passion, and he could talk about computers with mm-hmm. passion. And the final thing that he talked, he would constantly speak about was spying. Yeah. Well, okay. We you know we're at the almost to the end of the show, and I can't leave this without asking about. The experience you had with the Palm Pilot. I know this is, in at least in the movie, for me it was the focus of the whole movie. Well, it was a, it was a, it's it's sent it's central to the movie because it was also very central to the case. Um, as I said earlier um, in, in this interview, uh, we had to get ke- to get him red-handed. We had to find the information that would lead us to be able to um, to catch him committing espionage. Um, so part of my job was to keep my eyes open um, and investigating Hansen, try to find where he might hide some information that might point us to uh, where he might make his next drop to the Russians, because we knew it was coming. Um, there had been some chatter through the intelligence community. The Russians thought a big drop was coming. We suspected that was going to be Hansen making it. And so we're, we're on, I guess you call it a heightened state of alert. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one thing that you learn, a, a good PI learns, a good uh, cop learns, you know, you learn that criminals have tells. Uh, and maybe a better way to put it is they have routines. Mm-hmm. And so through observation, you can sometimes make out these routines. And one of Hansen's big ones was that Palm Pilot never left his, his side. It was in his left back pocket. As soon as he sat down, he'd slip it into his bag at the foot of his desk. And as he stood up, even before he stood up, he would mechanically reach into his bag, grab it, and slip it in his back pocket. Hmm. And uh, he also talked about it like it was his, you know, eighth child. So uh, I thought, this is something we got to get from him. And it's not easy to do that when he keeps on him. Um, 
you know, yeah, every 24/7, moment. Yeah. Right. Uh, he, he even said that I wrote the encryption on this thing myself, the operating system I wrote myself. You know, the, the FBI techs couldn't even crack this stuff. They don't know what they're doing. You know, all that thing, all of those things he says and the way he acts and the manner toward this thing mean that I needed to get it away from him. And so I worked with um, the agent who was in charge of me and one of, and, and some of the su superiors over at um, the field office, and we came up with a plan that would exploit one of his huge weaknesses, and that was his ego. Um, he had an enormous amount of ego and pride, and he part of my behavioral assessment was that he absolutely uh, did not like it if any um, person above him in the chain of command ordered him around. That hmm. would throw him into a rage. Really? Uh, and yeah, an absolute rage. Um, the person he would he would be quiet and gritting his teeth, and the person would leave, and he'd be slamming around in his office, angry. Um, so I thought, well, let's throw him into one of those fits, and maybe he'll forget the damn palm pilot. And so, because uh, we tried this a number of times, and it didn't work. Okay. And uh, finally, uh, I came I came up with the idea that um, one of his superiors would come in and challenge him to go shoot. And uh, and I thought that well, he's going to have to grab a bunch of equipment. And maybe he'll forget to reach down and grab a palm pilot. So he was completely put off. He didn't want to go. He said, I don't have time to shoot. I've got things to do. And, uh, and, and the, the superior said, no, you don't understand. This was very important. He said, you don't understand. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, get your gear and move it. Mm -hmm. um, and this threw him into a rage. Of course, he wasn't going to show he was angry to his superior. So, you know, without thinking, he grabbed his, his uh, firearm, his gun. At his desk, he, he grabbed his ear protection and his goggles and all that stuff, and he forgot to grab the palm pilot. Wow. Uh, for the first time. And so he left the office, went, went all the way down to the sub-basement where the range was. I uh, had an asset down there who, uh, who uh, sent me a text to say he's in pocket. Uh, and then I, I moved to the bag. I opened all the pockets, uh, rifled through the bag, found the palm pilot, and also found a uh, data card in a separate pocket. I uh, thought, well, you know, grab this too while I'm at it. And in real life, I ran down three flights of steps to where we had a tech team set up uh, to uh -huh. copy it, it, if I ever grabbed this thing. Um, so as they're copying it, I get a text from my asset down at the uh, range saying uh, he just abruptly left on his way back to you. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, yeah, and that's when I started to sweat because they weren't done copying it. Now, I had timed it. We had about nine minutes for him to get from the uh, the range all the way up to room 9930 in the ninth floor of the FBI. And anybody who's been in FBI headquarters um, knows that the place is a ridiculous maze that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, it's, you almost need lines painted in the floor to find. It's like, it's like being on an aircraft carrier. Um, I was told that that, by the way, uh, was, was so if, if anyone ever attacked the FBI headquarters, they'd be as lost as all the agents. <laughs> right. But uh, so, you know, he's on his way up. I'm waiting. At the last minute, I get the Palm Pilot. I run back up to the room, and I get to his bag and realize that, you know, and here's where sometimes having a rookie do things can work against you. Or, or maybe it was just Murphy's Law, you know, striking me like a lightning bolt from on high. But uh, he, I, I had unzipped all the pockets, and I, I couldn't remember which pockets I pulled yeah. these devices out of, other than I knew that one went in one pocket and one went in the other, and I had four to choose from. And he would know so, the difference. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. He had that routine. It was mechanical. He had done it a million times. And he yeah. knew exactly where that stuff went. So uh, I was trying to think back in my mind and figure it out when I heard him coming through the door. And so I just had to, uh, you know, pray and wish for luck and drop both things and 
zip up the bags and run back to my desk as fast as I could so he wouldn't see me um, playing with his bag in his office. And he, he gave me a dirty look, charged into his office, slammed his door, and I heard one of those pockets getting zipped open. Mm. And I knew, man, if that palm pilot in that pocket, I'm in trouble because that is clearly why he ran up here. I mean, on one, on one hand, I knew, wow, we've got the stuff to catch him. It's got to be on there if he's that, this paranoid. But on the other hand, I knew that if I don't sit here and make him feel comfortable, he's never going to make that drop. Uh, that must so, have been when you breathed. I, yeah, well, it wasn't until he came out of the room, <laughs> uh, uh, shouted at me and said, hey, have you been my, in my office? And I said, yeah, I put a memo in your inbox. Um, other than that, no. You know, what's the matter? And he just, he just shook his head and said, nothing. I'll, I'm, I'm leaving for the day. I'll see you tomorrow. Huh. And, uh, I wonder on that palm pilot, we had not only the drop site he was going to use, yeah. but the, the day he was going to make the drop. So wow. we're there ahead of him. Wow. And, and did you ever find out why he thought you might have been in the office? Uh, why he thought I might have been in the office. Yeah. No, he would. I think the his problem there was that, you know, in these sort of in these sort of undercover operations, when you're the bad guy or the good guy, you have to never let yourself. It's the same as when you're following any target. You have to never let yourself devolve into paranoia. Right. Uh, you know, a healthy healthy sense of self preservation is good. But once you start being paranoid, you start making mistakes. And his fear that he had uh, gone all the way down to the sub basement and left the keys to catching him in a bag with me in the office, um, where it was out of his control, had mm. set him toward paranoia. And what I had to do was talk him back down um, and make him feel comfortable, as though everything was routine and why would I ever go in your bag? And you know what, what really is your problem here? Um, and how long after that was he arrested? It was a matter of a week, about a week. We, wow. we caught him just in time. That's, it's amazing, just amazing. And uh, work well done. I just uh, amazing work. I really congratulate you. You did a, a great service for the country, and well, uh, something you're, I'm sure you're very proud of. I, I appreciate it, Nancy, and and it was great to uh, to be on PISD Classroom. Well, thanks, and we have to close the show. I'm sorry to say because I'd love to talk to you for another couple hours. But I have to say again, tune in uh, next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining us today, Eric. And thank you for having me. All right. Take care. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.